you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We're reading verses 1 to 17. In the Church Bible, it's on page 1134. That's Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God, It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Great, thank you very much, Claire. Uh, Good morning, everyone. Do keep that passage open in front of you. Um, That passage is uh, Romans chapter 8. We're looking particularly at the final four verses this morning, uh, verses 14 to 17. Um, And I wonder if you know the link between um, all of these Characters from fiction. Um, I was looking at uh, our, uh, one of our bookshelves the other day. Um, what is the link between Harry Potter and Frodo Baggins in Lord of the Rings, and Peter Pan, Lyra in the Dark Materials trilogy by Philip Pullman, Cinderella, and quite a few other people in um, fairy tales, Superman, James Bond, and Luke Skywalker? Um, and the link is that all of them are orphans. All of them are adopted or fostered in some kind of way. Um, and, and it's interesting, isn't it, that that is a theme that keeps on coming up in fiction. The opening theme in some of those stories, which you particularly see in Harry Potter, is this yearning for something more. 
So Harry, when it opens at the start of book one, um, Harry's in a not very nice situation. He doesn't seem to have an identity. He doesn't seem to have a purpose to his life. Um, and he is not in the context of love. He doesn't have a loving family. And of course, within a few pages, he is dramatically pulled out of that situation and told that he does have an identity. He does have a context of love. He does have people who care about him. And I think the theme of being orphaned and then being adopted or being taken in in some kind of sense to a family is a really powerful one because it speaks right to the heart of our humanity. We've heard this morning about adoption, the great work happening through Home for Good and through uh, different people in this church and, and other churches. And I meant to look up the figures for how many children in the UK, how many people in the UK have been adopted? How many people in London? wonder how many people in, in Kingston Borough, how many people in Chessington. wonder how many people in CEC have been adopted. Well, of course, as Dad pointed out earlier, the truth is that anyone here who is a Christian has been adopted. You might have listened to that interview and thought, it's very interesting, it's, it's not really something that's, that's come across my radar before. It's, it's not really something I have experience of. But of course, if you are a Christian, then you do have experience of it. You are an adoptee. And that's what we're going to spend the next 30 minutes or so thinking about. I think it's going to be deeply encouraging because we're going to see the warm heart of our God. What does the Bible teach about our spiritual adoption as Christians? We're going to use Romans 8 verses 14 to 17, but we're going to look at other parts of the Bible as well. We're also going to look at some, some ideas from great theologians, past and present, because they know more about it than I do. What does the Bible teach about adoption, our spiritual adoption? Well, here's the first thing. Here's the first point. We're adopted as children of God instead of being slaves. Romans 8 verse 14 says that those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And in verse 9, Paul has already taught that, uh, that anyone who has the Spirit is a Christian. All Christians have the Spirit, and therefore all Christians are the children of God. But what Romans 8 verse 14 doesn't tell us is the background, is the past history of Christians. We are children of God now, but that hasn't always been the case. The Bible says we lived in rebellion against God and he wasn't our father. That is the current state of humanity. You see that clearly um, when Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says this, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were sons of disobedience, we were children of wrath, we lived as enemies of God under his judgment, facing his judgment. In John chapter 8, Jesus is talking um, to some religious leaders and he says this, he says, if God were your father, you would love me. You are of your father, the devil, and you do what your father desires. That's another angle on it. There's shadows of this idea in the Old Testament. Um, In the Old Testament, um, Israel is sometimes called the son of God. 
But in Hosea chapter 11 verse 1, God says this. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now what was going on in Egypt, think of the Exodus story, they were slaves. They were under Pharaoh. But God rescues them out of that situation. That is the past history of Christians. And it is a terrible past history that we have been brought out of. It's similar, isn't it, in earthly adoptions. Children who are adopted are not normally children who are living in pleasant situations, in wonderful home lives, stable families that can love them and care for them and protect them and give them hope for the future. No, adoptions take place because there is a desperate need. Those children are in desperate need of someone to rescue them and bring them to a new family. And spiritually, that is the situation that the world is in. That is the current situation that many of our friends and family and colleagues and and people in this community are in. They are spiritual orphans. And there's that famous hymn, isn't there? Dear Lord and Father of mankind. I quite like it. It's got lots of really good lines in it. But actually, I think that opening line is unhelpful because the Bible doesn't really teach that God, that God is father of all mankind. He is in one sense. But actually that, 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 that fatherhood of God is, is, is for Christians. Others are spiritual orphans. But then with that as background, the Bible then proclaims this wonderful truth that as Christians, we have been adopted and we are now children of God the Father. Every human being is a spiritual orphan except for one, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Son of God in perfect relationship with God the Father and he steps down into the world to rescue spiritual orphans, to take them into God's family. And that means that we are not slaves. Um, Do look again at Romans chapter 8, verse 14. Paul says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Paul deliberately contrasts slavery with adoption. I think it's really deliberate because that passage that Daph referred to earlier, Galatians 4, which is like a mirror of this passage, he does the same thing. He contrasts um, adoption uh, as sons with slavery. So Paul thinks that we need to understand really clearly that we are sons rather than slaves. What, what does a slave do? How, how does a master treat a slave? And how does a good father treat a child? Well, a master treats a slave. That, the slave is there to work. The slave is there because they are useful. And they're only there as long as they are useful. A slave is there as long as they do a good job and they meet the requirements that are set out for them that the master has laid down. Otherwise, they will be in serious trouble. Their future will be in jeopardy. What about a loving father, a good father? He, he probably wants his child to live in a certain way. There are certain expectations around the house. But for a good father, his child will always be his child. His child's status as his child will always be that way. His, his affections for his child won't change depending on whether the child ticks the boxes and does a good job. The child isn't on contract. That's not how a good father relates to his child. The child's future is not in jeopardy. When Paul uses the language of of slave, he's sometimes referring to the law. uh, And some of his readers in Rome were probably Christians from a Jewish background. And they may have had it drilled into them that the only way to have a relationship with God 
is to do loads of stuff. So the only way to avoid his wrath was to to keep all these commands, to work really, really, really hard at completing that checklist every day and just hoping that you score highly enough, that you impress God and you impress other people around you enough, even though we all know deep down that we can't do that. We keep failing, and so we live in fear. That That was what Jews in the first century often thought. That is what many people today think. I don't know if you did watch the royal wedding yesterday. Um, There's a really good documentary on the history of the SAS on BBC Two at the same time, but I wasn't allowed to watch that. Apparently, I wasn't British enough. Um, I I, I don't know about you. This just crossed my my mind. I was really disappointed that just before the service, they didn't have a big screen with like a countdown clock so that the Queen knew she had five minutes to take her seat. Um, And there's no FYI area. I think there's a lot of things they can learn from us the next time time they do a wedding. Um, But I saw saw three or four minutes, only three or four minutes, uh, because I was writing this sermon, but three or four minutes of the build-up, which seemed to stretch on for about 20 hours. Um, and, And I personally found it terrifying um, if I ever get invited to a royal wedding, um, <laughs> that would be a surprise. Um, but if I do, I'm going to be really nervous because that coverage was terrifying. They had cameras everywhere zoomed in on people, zoomed in on, on their faces, on their makeup, on their hats, on their clothes. Um, and there were just people sitting in a studio just analysing it all, going, oh, that's what she's wearing. Oh, that's really interesting. And, uh, and people say, oh, they look very happy, or they don't look very happy, or they're talking to them. That's a surprise. You could almost lip-read what people were saying. It was absolutely terrifying. To, I don't know if the people knew that, that you know, the cameras were so close on them. And, and we just all sat there in our homes, being able to judge what, the, what dresses they were wearing. And I wonder, isn't that the way that lots of people think salvation operates that we're just all on display we're all on display for everything to see and we need to present ourselves um, in a good enough way to, to to meet the mark even as christians we fall into that trap we've got to show other people and we've got to show god that we are good enough we're under scrutiny and in romans 8 paul says that is not the message of the gospel the wonderful truth is that as a christian god calls you his child And as his child, whatever you do or you don't do, it doesn't affect your adoption as his child. It comes through grace. It comes at great cost to God. It is not dependent on what we do. Think about earthly adoption. It involves a legal change in status. There is a formal process. Paperwork is filled out. Documents are signed. And a child legally comes into a family as the son or daughter. It's not done on a whim. And it's not undone on a whim. And so it is with our spiritual adoption into God's family. But even more so, because it's not sealed with a signature on a bit of paper. It is sealed by a cross at Calvary. It's not a certainty. The future of that child and the legal status of that child, of our childhood of God, is not a certainty because it's been signed with ink from a pen but because it's been signed by the blood of Jesus, shed for us, blood that will never fade. If you're a Christian, you are a child of God, and you will always be a child of God. And that is an incredible privilege. It happens when we're saved. It happens when we are justified, when we're made right with God. That is the point at which we are adopted, um, through Jesus' death and resurrection. But I wonder if you've ever thought this. 
Maybe there was a way in which God could have justified us without adopting us. In other words, there's a way in which Romans 8 verse 1 could have happened without Romans 8 verse 14. Romans 8 verse 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation. God could have stopped there. We could legally have been, have been declared legally right with God. Not condemned. Not guilty anymore. We, we weren't going to face God's punishment. We would have been able to worship God. And that would have been an extraordinary act of God's mercy and grace. But God doesn't stop there. God brings us into his family. He adopts us. You might have heard the illustration, this common illustration of the judge and the criminal. It's often used in evangelistic um, talks, things like that. It's a really good illustration of what happens when God justifies us. You've got a criminal, he turns up a court. Uh, let's say he's a teenager, he's a teenage criminal. He turns up a court um, and he's, he's, he's done a crime. He's guilty as anything, he knows he's guilty, everyone knows he's guilty. He turns up, he has to pay this massive fine, um, but he can't. He's on the verge of going to prison for a very long time. But then the judge steps down, gets out his checkbook, and he pays the fine. That's incredible, isn't it? And the guy goes home free. But here's where the illustration can keep going. Imagine if the judge gets out his checkbook, pays the fine, turns to the young teenage criminal, says, I can tell, I've read your notes, I can tell that you come from a really broken background, you haven't got a family, your life's a mess. Come and join my family. I finish work in two hours' time, just wait here, and then you can come home. You can eat with us, you can live with us, you can have a bedroom in our house. We will support you, we will fund you as you study, as you look for jobs. You will be our son. That is what God does. That is the miracle of adoption. Adoption is incredible. Jim Packer, the great theologian, says this. He says, to be right with God as judge is a great thing. To be right with a holy God, who is the holy judge, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is even greater. I think I'd agree with him. But perhaps we struggle to believe that. Do we know that if we are a Christian, God is Father? And do we rejoice in that? I think, um, I, I think one of the things that sets apart people who are, who are Christians, maybe compared to people who think they're Christians but aren't, is that as Christians we know God is Father. We just have that in us. And actually that doesn't come to us naturally. It doesn't come to us rationally. Think of Moses in, um, in Exodus chapter 3 where he approaches the burning bush, the bush that uh, is, is supposed to be on fire but isn't burning away. And God says, take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. Work through the book of Exodus where you've got the ten plagues, where God turns Egypt upside down. He overthrows the might of Pharaoh, shows that he's a powerful God. Then you get to Exodus chapter 19 where God's glory is seen on the mountain. That is the God of the Bible, and yet we can call him Father. That's an amazing thing. And here's our second point. We can only know that because of the Spirit's work. Look at verse 15. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. 
Verse 15 has two contrasting statements. We're not slaves, we're adopted to sonship. And because we're not slaves, we don't fear. Instead, we say, Abba, Father. That's the opposite of fear. Abba was a highly personal name for God that the Jews in the first century wouldn't have dared to use. In some ways, it was used as you know, a toddler speaking to their dad, calling him Daddy. So why does Paul use it? And here's the other question I've got in my head. Why does Paul use a word that is in Aramaic in the middle of a letter he wrote in Greek? That's not a mistake because when it comes to Galatians, he does exactly the same thing. The whole thing is in Greek and then he gets to that one word and he says that one word in Aramaic. Here's what, why I think it is. Tell me afterwards if you, if you agree or not. He's thinking of passages like Mark chapter 14. In Mark chapter 14, verse 36, Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane hours before his death, and he prays this, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Why does Paul use the word Abba? Because Jesus did. And I think Paul and the early church were so struck by the fact that Jesus used this highly unusual, intimate term for God, the term a young child would use for its father, that they thought, you know what, we're going to use exactly the same word and even keep it in the same language. Jesus called God Father. But hang on, you might say, Jesus is God the Son. So if anyone can call God the Father, God God the Father, Father, then it is God the Son. But Paul uses it, and he says that if we are Christians, we can call God Father, experience God as Father, and that is so against the way we naturally think of God that we need God's Spirit to help us. What a privilege. What a work of the Spirit. He reveals God the Father's fatherhood to us. And that knowledge should be really precious to us. There are many titles for God in the Bible, um, and in the kids' slot in the morning um, services over the last few months, we've learned about lots of them. John Calvin, the great reformer, one of the greatest Bible scholars of all time, one of the greatest theologians, had a brain the size of a planet. He knew probably every title of God in the Bible. He said this, my favorite title for God is Father Think of the creeds, those statements of belief that that, that churches and and Bible-believing Christians have stood by for centuries and centuries. Those creeds, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and written around about the 4th century, 5th century, they summarize all of Christian teaching, all the key beliefs. They basically summarize that their priority is, what do we believe about God? And how do they begin? This is how the Nicene Creed begins. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty. The Apostle Creed is is a very similar beginning. Everything that's taught in the Bible, everything that Christians believe, every possible doctrine or Bible truth, and what do they look at in the first sentence? God as Father. Martin Luther, another famous Reformation thinker, said this, and he was talking about the creeds when he said this. He said, um, in these creeds, God himself has revealed and disclosed the deepest profundity of his fatherly heart, his sheer inexpressible love. He created for us the very purpose, for the very purpose that he might redeem us and make us holy. And besides giving and entrusting to us everything in heaven and on earth, he has given us his son and his spirit in order to bring us to himself through them. 
We were totally unable to come to a recognition of the Father's favour and grace except through the Lord Christ, who is the mirroring image of the Father's heart. Without Christ, we see nothing in God but an angry and terrible judge. We could know nothing of Christ either if it were not revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. What Luther is saying is that the the, the doctrine of adoption is almost the pinnacle of the work of the Trinity. The Father becomes our Father through the Son, and we know that through the work of the Spirit. That means that it's not surprising if we're talking to someone who's not a Christian, and they see God as a distant or a terrifying ruler, because the Spirit's work is not in them. It's the Spirit's work that makes us see the truth of God revealed as Father. Um, I saw this book on my shelf this morning. Um, It's a book, some of you have probably read this. It's a book by a woman who was a Muslim, brought up as a Muslim, um, lived as a Muslim for um, many, many years, and then she became a Christian. And what is the book called? It's called I Dared to Call Him Father. Because Muslims have 99 names for God, but none of them is Father. She becomes a Christian and she says, wow, I can call God Father because of Jesus. If you're someone who's here this morning and you think, God is Father, that's ludicrous. I'm I'm not a Christian, but this sounds like a really attractive God. Why not speak to God? Why not ask God to show you the truth of him as Father? Why not speak to one of us afterwards? We can maybe pray with you. We're only adopted through Jesus. We're adopted in the Son. The Bible teaches that really Clearly, we have access to the Father because we're joined with the Son. Saw an illustration of that yesterday, didn't we? Prince Charles um, is there. He greets Meghan and he walks Meghan up the last few paces. Now, why does he do that? He doesn't do it because he quite likes doing that. You know, he just like just sends out an email to everyone in the country. He says, "Hey, if you want someone to walk someone up an aisle, I'm your man." Just one of my hobbies. I don't charge very much for it. I'm happy to go anywhere. Now, he does that in this very special occasion in this incredibly special context because of the relationship Megan has with his son. I, am, I don't know if he watches Suits. I'd imagine two or three years ago he'd never heard of her. But now she walks in and he greets her and he takes her. Why? Because of the relationship she has with his son. That's how you have access to the father. Here's our third and final point. Paul uses another word to describe us in Romans 8. Uh, look at verse 17. He says, now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Every, um, every few months, normally around the time of the budget, there's something about inheritance tax, isn't there? But that idea of inheritance um, goes back centuries. Um, inheritance, that idea of, of inheritance was around at the time of the New Testament. But of course, slaves wouldn't expect to inherit the master's estate. The master's children would do that. They are the heirs. And Paul says we are written into the will of the Father through the Son. And what are we going to receive? We're going to receive something much better than money, much better than earthly treasures. One of the problems with the prosperity gospel is this, apart from the fact it's not what the Bible teaches. One of the problems is that their, their expectations are too low. They think, oh, just treasures now. We want stuff now. We want a great holiday now. We want to be prosperous now. And, 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 and here's how one theologian has summarized the promised inheritance. He says, this is what you get. You get two things, only two things. You get this. You get God the Trinity, and you get the new heavens and the new earth. 
God the Trinity and the new heavens and the new earth. That is what is promised for us as children of God. We can know this God perfectly for eternity in the context of the new creation. Why, like, why get caught up on holidays now when you look at that for eternity? And so live it out. Live out your status as a child of God. And how do you do that? Well, Paul says one great way to do that, which shows that you're a child of God, is following in the footsteps of Jesus. And Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered. But there is glory coming. That would have been a great comfort to Paul's readers um, because they lived in Rome. Um, In Rome, they faced persecution. There was a time coming shortly after he'd written this letter where they faced extreme persecution. Around the world this morning, there are Christians facing extreme persecution. There are Christians worried about the door being kicked in and someone coming to arrest them. What a great comfort to know they are children of God. They're children of the Father. And whatever happens, there is glory coming. So as we finish, let me highlight five ways, five ways briefly, in which this can affect our day-to-day lives as Christians. Number one, it shapes our view of God. Here's something else that um, Jim Packer wrote in his famous book, Knowing God. He said this, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. Do you view God as Father? Or do you view him as this distant Lord? This this scary um, ruler? Well, actually, these kinds of passages, they really shape our thinking, don't they? they? They speak to our souls. God is revealing himself to us this morning as Father. Why not ask for the Spirit to do that more? And perhaps there are some people here for which this is quite hard. Because you didn't have the experience of a good father when you were growing up. Maybe you had a father who died before you were born. Maybe you had an experience of a father who left when you were young. Maybe you had an experience of a cruel father. Well, in the Bible, the Bible is really keen on two or three separate occasions to contrast bad fathers with God the Father. And that is because God is a good, good father. And here's what I'd encourage you to do if you fall into one of those categories. I would say don't stay away from thinking of God as father because the the whole concept of father has a lot of things that go with it which, which, which are unfortunate for you. I would say go deeper into it. Go deeper into it. Read about it. Get books on, on, on all these things we're looking at this morning. Because as you delve deeper and deeper into the Father heart of God, you will not be disappointed. You will find there what you've always wanted. Um, Sinclair Ferguson says this. He says, The knowledge that the Father has bestowed his love on us so that we are called children of God will over time prove to be the solvent in which our fears, our mistrust, our suspicion of God, and our sense of distance from him will eventually dissolve and fade away. Here's the second thing. It shapes our prayer life. It shapes our prayer life. Daph said this earlier. When the disciples turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, how do we pray? Jesus turns to them and says, pray our Father. 
I was um, leading one of our CEs at school um, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and in our CEs, we get some boys who are Christians, some boys who aren't Christians, some boys who are too shy to pray. Um, but some boys do pray. Um, but sometimes it feels like they've just swallowed a theological dictionary for lunch. Um, and they, they, one of them, it, it was, it was, I don't know if it was impressive or just funny, but he used about 23 different titles for God in his opening sentence. I said to them afterwards, I said, boys, you know you can just call God Father. <laughs> Just call God Father. God is not distant. Prayer is the primary way we experience God as Father, I think. That is how we have communion with him. Here's the third way it applies to us. Um, It applies to us as church. Because I am adopted, I am adopted as a child of God. And if you're a Christian, you're adopted as a child of God. And that makes us brother and sister. And the early church was so conscious of this that the main way they refer to Christians in the, in the New Testament letters, it seems to me, is brother and sister. They're constantly calling each other brother and sister. That is our nature as a church. We are a miracle of adoption. We're, like, we're such a random mix of people. How on earth would you get all this mix of people in a room together on a Sunday morning except the miracle of adoption? Each of us is adopted in Jesus by the Father. And that makes us brother and sister. And we will be forever. It changes the way we think about church. Number four, it changes the way we think about other people. I spoke to a member of staff at school this week. They said this. They said, I overwork. I work too hard because I'm scared of what other people think of me. I'm scared that I'm just not good enough and I won't meet up to their standards. And as Christians, we can fall into the trap of doing those kind of things, thinking those kind of things. What a blessing it is to know that we have a loving Father who's the creator of the universe. And he loves us. He loves us no matter what we do. He loves us no matter how we do in work on a particular day. Once you start thinking about that and dwelling on that fact and meditating on that and praying in the context of that, suddenly what other people think of you becomes less, much less important. And here's the final way. Final way is what we heard from Home for Good earlier in the service. Earthly adoption echoes our spiritual adoption. It rescues those who are in desperate need of a new family. It is by grace and mercy. Those children on the screen, they're they're not submitting CVs and saying, right, I want to prove to you, I want to prove that that I'm I'm good enough to be your son. No, it's it's the mercy of the parents saying, we're going to take you. And we're going to welcome you, whoever you are. We're going to accept you as you are. It's costly, isn't it? Adoption is costly. But adoption, God's adoption of us was costly. The son came to die for us. It's not easy. It involves sacrifice, but it brings great joy. Um, it brings a new status. It brings a new hope. In all these ways, it echoes our spiritual adoption. And therefore, it's a fantastic witness to the world. Because it's saying, this is our God. This is our God. This is the heart of our God. And here's, the, here's what I'm going to finish with. Um, George Muller. George Muller was a German who lived in Bristol at the start of the 19th century. He wanted to be a missionary. He ended up being a missionary. Um, but he spent many years of his life setting up homes for orphans. He started with nothing, and yet he set up homes for 10,000 orphans. At the time, there were only homes for three and a half thousand orphans in the whole of the country. But he set up homes for 10,000. And it changed the way orphans were catered for, were cared for 
in Britain. It's even better now, isn't it, you know, being adopted into families. But right then, that was the thing that urgently needed to happen, and that's what he did. And this is what one of his biographies wrote. Biographers wrote. He wrote, The world, dull of understanding, has even yet not really grasped the mighty principle upon which Muller acted, but is inclined to think of him merely as a nice old gentleman who liked children, a sort of guardian of the poor. To describe him thus, however, is to degrade his memory. It is to miss the high spiritual aim, the wonderful spiritual lesson of his life. He didn't just do it because he was a humanitarian. It shows the obvious and extraordinary witness to the faithfulness of God. Do you see what he's saying? Muller didn't do that because he's a nice guy. He did it because he's a Christian. He did it because he knows he's been adopted by the father. And he looks out on all these orphans. He looks out on all these children in desperate need. And he thinks, that's what God's done for me. What can I do for them? A few years later, 10,000 children had gone through his homes. Let's pray. In 1 John 3, it says, See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. And Father, thank you for John. Thank you that John had that, um, that, that wonder, that amazement um, at being a child of God, being a child of yours. And Father, as we looked at this teaching this morning from Paul, um, Father, please will we go away amazed that as Christians, we are your children, that we can address you as Father, the creator of the universe, the Lord of all things, and we can call you Father. Father, you took us as spiritual orphans and you rescued us and you brought us into your family. And Father, we thank you for that. We rejoice in that. And we pray, Father, that we would think through the practical applications of it over the next few days. We would seriously think about those. In Jesus' name, amen.